Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, last Sunday morning, uh, we kicked off a new preaching slash teaching series entitled Soul Keeping. Uh, I'll remind us that the series is based on a book of the same name by John Ortberg. Uh, John Ortberg is a pastor. He lives in California. And our goal in these sermons, our goal in these messages, <clears throat> excuse me, is to better understand the soul, uh, what the soul is, what the soul needs, and what a restored soul looks like so that we can in turn care for our soul, steward our soul, and allow our soul to abide in God, the very one who created it. And so last week, as we started these conversations, we began with our first topic, what the soul is. What the soul is. The soul, we said, it's not simply something that lives on after we die. The soul is far more than that. The soul is the deepest expression of who we are. All of us as human beings, we have an outer life, but then we also have an inner life. Our outer life includes things like our education, our career, our accomplishments, our successes, the things that we like to highlight on our resume. Our outer life also includes our reputation, what other people think about us, how other people perceive us. Our outer life is busy, isn't it? It's involved, it's complex, it's visible. And so that's where we put a lot of our focus and attention, our outer life. But then we also have an inner life that's easy to ignore and neglect because nobody else sees it. Only God and ourselves has access to it. In our inner life, it's unfortunate that we ignore our inner life because our inner life is where our soul resides. The soul is actually the operating system of our whole life. It guides and directs. It's like the steering wheel of a car. It guides and directs our entire being. We all have different parts about us. We have a will, and this is the graph that we shared last time. We have a will, we have a mind, and we have a body. The soul is what integrates the will, the mind, and the body and binds them together as a whole. And so what this means is when the will, the mind, and the body are all doing what they're supposed to do, what they're designed to do, that makes for a healthy soul. But when the will, the mind, and the body experience disunity, disintegration, induced by sin, well, then the soul is lost. And the real sad truth is we live on a planet of lost souls. Lost souls are all around us. Sin is the sickness that our souls have inherited. And the answer to sin, according to Scripture, is salvation. Salvation is not just about going to heaven when you die. Salvation is about healing. It's about deliverance at the deepest level of who you are in the care of God in the presence of Jesus Christ. And so, folks, that's a real quick summary, about three, three-and-a-half-minute summary of what we spoke about last time, what the soul is. If you want to learn more, uh, you can find the video on our YouTube page or our Facebook page, uh, the sermon from last time. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to shift gears and we're going to talk about our next topic, 
what the soul needs. You may or may not know this, but your soul is extremely needy. Somebody say, I have a needy soul. Come on, folks. Somebody say, I have a needy soul. Your soul is extremely needy. When I think about the neediness of the soul, and John Orberg uh, mentions this as well, uh, he gives this example. Uh, the movie that comes to mind for me is a movie that my mom and I used to watch a lot, and now Amanda and I watch it all the time. It's called What About Bob? Has anybody ever seen What About Bob before? Came out back in the early 90s. If you have not seen this movie, oh my goodness, you are missing out. Go home this afternoon. Well, actually, this afternoon, come to the choir concert. But then after that, this evening, go ahead and watch What About Bob? The movie stars Bill Murray. Bill Murray plays the title character, Bob Wiley. Bob is the most endearing, I'm trying to think of how to say this, endearing, mentally unstable man that you will ever encounter. Yeah, he's mentally unstable, but you know what? You've got to love the guy. Uh, he is a neurotic, phobic, obsessive, compulsive personality with multiple needs. And so in one of the opening scenes that we're going to watch, Bob Wiley visits with his psychiatrist, Dr. Leo Marvin. Do you remember who plays Dr. Leo Marvin? Richard Dreyfus. Very good. And so Bob Wiley meets with uh, Dr. Marvin, and he tells Dr. Marvin about all of his problems. And so, check it out. Why don't I start? Huh? The simplest way to put it, I have problems. Uh, I worry about diseases, so uh, I have trouble touching things. Uh, in public places, it's, it's uh, almost impossible. I have a real big problem moving. Talk about moving. As long as I'm in my apartment, I'm okay. But when I want to go out, I get weird. Talk about weird. Talk about weird. Well, I get dizzy spells, nausea, cold sweats, hot sweats, fever, blisters, difficulty breathing, difficulty swallowing, blurred vision, involuntary trembling, dead hands, numb lips, fingernail sensitivity, pelvic discomfort. Bob is pretty needy, isn't he? Well, here's an observation. Your soul is Bob. And forgive me, Bob Showalter, for doing this, but if you want to give a name to your soul, you can call your soul Bob. Your soul is Bob. It is the nature of your soul to need. You ever heard of uh, Thomas Aquinas before? If you grew up Catholic, if you have a Catholic background, you've probably heard of Thomas Aquinas, very famous theologian, lived back in the Middle Ages. Well, Thomas Aquinas once said, that the neediness of the soul is not a bad thing. The neediness of the soul is not a bad thing. The neediness of the soul is actually meant to point us to God. Think about this with me. A big part of what it means to be a human being is to be limited in almost every way. For example, you could be as smart as Albert Einstein or Madame Curie, but even Albert Einstein and Madame Curie 
we're only so smart. You could be as athletic as LeBron James, but even LeBron James is only so athletic. Um, you could be as strong as Arnold Schwarzenegger, but even Arnold Schwarzenegger is only so strong. You could be as fast as Usain Bolt, who is the fastest man in the world, but even he is only so fast. You could be as energetic as a middle schooler hyped up on Mountain Dew during a youth retreat, <laughs> but even that middle schooler only has so much energy. You could be as good-looking as your pastor, Chris Jones. Amen? <laughs> Nobody said amen. Come on. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for those sympathetic amens. <laughs> but even your pastor is only so good-looking. You get my point. What it means to be human is to be limited. We are limited in terms of our intelligence. We are limited in terms of our athletic ability. We are limited in terms of our strength. We are limited in terms of our a speed, we are limited in terms of our energy, we are limited in terms of our morality. The only area where we don't have any limits is when it comes to desire. We are always desiring more, aren't we? More money, more fame, more success, more recognition, more data on our cell phones. Desire is the soul's way of crying out that we never have enough. But here's the other truth with this. The soul's infinite capacity to desire mirrors God's infinite capacity to give. The soul's infinite capacity to desire mirrors God's infinite capacity to give. Folks, maybe the real reason we feel as if we don't have enough is that our gracious God and our God is so good. Our gracious God is not yet finished giving. The unlimited neediness of the soul matches the unlimited grace of God. So here's the real problem. The real problem is not that the soul is needy. The soul is meant to be needy. The real problem is that we are fallen. We have sin in this world. We have sin in ourselves. And what sin does, sin compromises the soul. And sin causes us to go after other things instead. Allowing those things to fill us, trying to allow those things to satisfy us, even though they can't, when really only God should be the one satisfying us. And the Bible actually has a name for this kind of behavior that we engage in. You know what the Bible calls it? Idolatry. Idolatry is one of the most serious sins in all the Bible. In fact, in many ways, idolatry is the most serious sin. Tim Keller once said, it's the sin behind the sin. The Bible often associates idolatry with adultery. When we commit idolatry, we essentially cheat on God. And we allow some competing desire to take God's place. All of us do this. When I was 18 years old, and getting ready to leave for college. I went to my pastor one day. He was in his office. And I said, okay, Pastor Alex, I'm about to go to college. I'm all packed up. I'm going to be hitting the road. I'm going to be pursuing God's call in my life to be a pastor like you, because at that time I, I knew in the depth of who I was that God wanted me to be a pastor. And I said to him, before I leave for college, I was wondering, do you have any last-minute advice for me? Any 
imparting wisdom that you want to give to me? And he said, yes, I do. Here's what I want you to keep in mind. It's not about being right. It's about relationships. It's not about being right. It's about relationships. And then he explained what he meant. He said, you're going to college. You're moving out of the house. You're out of youth group. You're becoming an adult. What's going to happen over the next few years? You're going to be exposed to all kinds of people who are going to carry a variety of opinions and convictions. People are going to say things that you won't like, that you're going to disagree with. And for that reason, you may be tempted to cut off ties with them. Don't do that. It's not about being right. It's about relationships. I've thought about that advice that he gave me as an 18-year-old pretty often over the years. Being right could be an idol, can it? When we allow this constant need to be right to take precedence over human relationships, when being right becomes more important to us than loving our neighbor, even though Jesus said that loving our neighbor is the great commandment, then we put being right and subsequently who? Ourselves on a throne that only God should be on. Being right can be an idol. You see, folks, when we think of idolatry, here's what we typically imagine. We imagine primitive people, ancient people from a long time ago, bowing down to some statue, some inanimate object, and then we say to ourselves, you know what, I am too smart for that, I am too good for that, I am too educated for that. No. Idolatry is a lot more subtle than that. We could be committing idolatry and not even realize it. When we think about money all the time, when we constantly dream of winning the lottery or coming into a big inheritance or fantasizing about what we would buy if money were no object, then we have made money into an idol. When we crave approval by our peers, when we spend more time obsessing over what others think of us than we do in our prayer lives, or when we fail to make the right decision, the moral decision, the decision with integrity, because we fear it's going to tick people off, then we have made pleasing people into an idol. I love what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 1.10. He says, if I were still pleasing people, I would not be a servant of Jesus Christ. Or how about this? When we spend more time on our career than we do with our family, we neglect our spouse or our children when we fail to rest or eat properly or take care of our body because we're always at work, then we have made our career into an idol. When we're constantly worried about not having enough, even though we have a stream of income, when we're hoarding our financial resources, when we find it easy to spend, easy to go to the mall, easy to go to the movies, easy to go out to eat, but difficult to tithe and give generously to God's work through the church, then we've made ourselves Lord of our finances instead of making Jesus Lord of our finances. If our doctor told us that we had to give something up because it was putting our health at serious risk, alcohol, cigarettes, red meat, caffeine, sodium, and we would find giving up that thing difficult, if not impossible, like our life would be less fulfilling if we didn't have that thing? Folks, we have made that thing into an idol. Or how about this? When we obsess over politics, when we're constantly posting our political beliefs on social media, when we insist that if we don't get this person in office, then the whole world is going to fall apart. 
and the apocalypse is going to be ushered in, then we have made a politician or a party or a political system into an idol. Now listen to me. I want to be clear. It's not that politics don't matter. It's not that we shouldn't vote. It's not that we shouldn't get involved. And it's also not that God doesn't care how we govern ourselves. Of course God cares how we govern ourselves. But politics, if we're not careful, can also become an idol. When we stay awake at night thinking about X, Y, Z, instead of thinking about God and allowing our body to get the rest that it needs, we have made that thing, whatever it is, fill in the blank, into an idol. Uh, my favorite writer of the New Testament is the Apostle John. In addition to writing the Gospel of John, he also authored three letters that we have in the back of the New Testament. First John, Second John, Third John. This is what the Apostle says at the end of First John. These are his closing words to his readers. First John chapter 5, verse 21. He says, Dear children, keep yourselves from what? Keep yourselves from idols. We all have idols. John Calvin was a theologian in the 1500s. He once said that the human heart is a factory for idols. Our tendency, our predisposition because of sin is to go after idols. But our soul isn't meant for an idol. Our soul is meant for God. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, uh, the opening words of this psalm. He says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? What I love about this psalm is the psalmist acknowledges two things. He acknowledges two things. Number one, the soul's neediness, but he also acknowledges, number two, the soul's ultimate desire, God. Our soul is meant for God, which means the first step in having a healthy soul is to fully surrender to God. Not partially surrender, not surrender most of the way, fully surrender to God. Have you done this? 20 years ago next month, I was 16. I was a rising junior in high school. This was two years before I left for college and had that conversation with my pastor. As a high school student, I had grown up in the church, but I was really struggling with faith. I was intellectually struggling. I was emotionally struggling. And much to the disappointment of my mother, I began to pull back from church as much as I could. And I allowed my soul to go after things that were not God. But then, on a hot summer night, like tonight's going to be, amen? On a spiritual retreat that I was attending for high school students, the preacher, and, and I couldn't tell you his name, but I still remember his message. He invited us as students to give all of who we were over to God. And so that's what I did. There were tears racing down my cheeks. My heart was beating fast. I was literally on my knees, and I just begged Jesus. I begged Jesus to give me the salvation that I craved so that my soul could finally be at peace. 
The first step in having a healthy soul is to fully surrender to God. Some of us haven't done that. And if that's the case, I would encourage you to do so. Give your soul to God. I, I love what Jesus says. He says, if you try to hang on to your soul, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your soul for me and for my kingdom, only then will you save it. Give your soul to God. Fully surrender to God. But then also recognize that as you do that, that folks, this is not a one-time prayer. So often we think, okay, I said that prayer to Jesus when I was 16 or when I was 18 or when I was 20 or whatever the case might be, now I'm done. No, this is not a one-time prayer. This is not a one-time commitment. This is the start of an eternal journey that God invites us on. A journey that each and every day requires proaction and diligence, recognizing how easy it is, how simple it is for the souls to stray away. What do the hymn writers say? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It is so easy for the soul to stray away, to go after idols. And so we need to do our part by God's grace, making sure that our soul remains centered in God. This is the advice that Dallas Willard gave John Orford. He said this, you must arrange your days so that you are experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. You must arrange your day so that you are experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. This is not simply about having a devotional life where you read the Bible and you pray for about 15 minutes and then you go about the rest of your day as if nothing has happened, forgetting about God. No. You have to arrange your days in such a way so that you are aware of God in each moment of that day. This might sound difficult because there are so many things that distract us, but with some creativity, it's possible to do this. When my mom passed away, uh, people were really kind and they were very gracious to me. They mailed me condolence cards, letting me know that they were thinking about me and my family. Well, I remember one day when I was living in Davenport, serving a church there, uh, Davenport, Florida. I went to the mailbox one day, and we had a community mailbox. You know what I'm talking about, where you have a key for your particular box? And so I'm at this community mailbox, and I'm getting my mail. Well, all of a sudden, the mail carrier just drove by, and she said to me, are you Pastor Chris Jones? And I was kind of taken aback. We hadn't met yet. I had only been living there for maybe a month, month and a half. And I nodded and I said, yes, yes, I'm, I'm Chris Jones. And she said, is everything okay? I've noticed that you've been getting a lot of cards recently. I was hoping that they were birthday cards. But I had a feeling that they weren't. And I said, no, they're not birthday cards. Explained that my mom had gotten sick and diagnosed with cancer and was in the ICU, passed away within the month. It all happened so fast. I was still kind of processing everything that had happened. And she said, I'm so sorry. I want you to know, Pastor, I've been praying for you. I said, you have? And she said, well, sure. You know, people don't realize this about a mail carrier, but a mail carrier actually has an inside window into somebody's life. 
albeit a, a small window, but that's still a window. For example, I know if the creditors are coming after somebody because they're getting the same bill after the same bill after the same bill. Obviously, there's confidentiality. I don't tell anybody who this person is, but I know if the creditors are coming after them. I also know if somebody has passed away just based on all the cards, the personal cards that that person receives. So here's what I do, because I'm a Christian. As I put the mail in their box, I say a prayer. I pray that God would bless them. I pray that God would uplift them. I pray that God would fill their life with good things. That's what I've been doing for you. I've been praying for you, Pastor Chris Jones. And she drove away. That milk carrier had arranged her days in such a way that she was aware of God's presence, including at her job, where she spent most of her time. So here's my encouragement to those of us who are working, or maybe those of us who are volunteering somewhere, or serving as a stay-at-home parent. Think about ways that you might do this. Incorporate God into what you're doing throughout the day. But then in addition to that, these are some other practices that I submit to you so that we can arrange our days in such a way that God remains at the very center. Uh, this is up here on the screens. And, and by the way, this list is also included in the bulletin. And so don't feel the need to write all this down. If you can't keep up, that's okay. Uh, you can bring the bulletin home with you today. Uh, but the first thing is this. Number one, when you wake up in the morning, do not immediately reach for your phone. Refrain from checking email and or social media until you have first prayed and invited God into your day. Don't allow all the problems of the world to begin your day. Allow God to start your day. Number two, be mindful of the content that you consume. Be mindful of the content that you consume. For example, while it is important to stay informed of what's going on in this world, do not spend hours and hours and hours watching the news. Usually the first 15, 20 minutes will cover what you need to know. And if you are consuming content, whether that content is on social media or through television, and that content is filling you with anger, making you upset, instead of filling you with love and joy and peace, which are the fruit of the Spirit, don't consume that content. Number three, practice Sabbath rest. Get some rest. Spend time in nature as much as you can during the summer months and drink lots of water as you do that. And make time for the people, whether it's friends or family, the people who fill you with joy. And then the next time that you are feeling angry, worried, upset, fearful, critical, practice soul speaking. That is, do what the psalmist did. Talk directly to your soul. Earlier we read from Psalm 42, where the psalmist says, as the deer longs for streams of water, so my soul longs for you. Well, this is what that same psalmist says in that same psalm. This is from verse 5 and verse 11 of Psalm 42. He says, where is it? So, uh, oh, here it is. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? He's talking to his soul. A lot of us are really good at practicing self-talk. You ever practiced self-talk before? For example, if we mess up, if we screw up, we'll say to ourselves, you dummy, why'd you do that? 
But instead of practicing self-talk, practice soul talk. Talk to your soul. So why are you so angry right now with this person? So why are you so fearful? So why are you filled with such worry? So why do you want to take vengeance? The difference between self-talk and soul talk is that the soul exists in the presence of God. So when we talk to our soul, we become aware of God, and what we're saying turns into a prayer. And whatever those feelings are that we have, we start to submit those over to God, who is big enough to handle all of them. Here's another practice. Seek out simple ways in your everyday life to decenter yourself, reminding yourself that you are not the center of this universe, or as my mom would say to me, the world does not revolve around you. Encourage somebody, compliment somebody, let somebody else ahead of you in line at the grocery store. I know that's difficult and hard, but you can do it by God's grace you can. Let somebody else ahead of you. Make room for a driver on the road. The scriptures say, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourself. Humility does wonders for the soul. Amen? And then finally, I'd be remiss as a United Methodist. If I did not say, practice what John and Charles Wesley, founders of Methodism, called the means of grace, those everyday channels that God gives to us, and through these channels, God infuses us with grace. Worship, reading the Bible, praying, receiving communion, serving those in need. Folks, this is by no means an exhaustive list. There are other practices that we could add here. But these are practices, simple practices, that will help us arrange our days in such a way that God remains at the very center. Let me end all this by saying these words. You and you alone are responsible for the condition of your soul. You and you alone are the keeper of your soul. Your spouse is not the keeper of your soul. Your children are not the keeper of your soul. Your pastor is not the keeper of your soul. You and you alone are the keeper of your soul. As the keeper, recognizing how needy your soul is, how easy it is because of sin to go after idols, you must, as Dallas Willard said, arrange your days so that you are experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. The only one, the only one who can satisfy your very needy soul. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, our soul is needy. And that's okay. You made our soul to be needy. Because our soul is meant for you. The psalmist puts it much better than I ever could. As the deer longs for streams of water, so my soul longs for you. God, please forgive us for going after idols, for allowing other things to fill our soul, transitory things, superficial things, things that ultimately don't matter. And even as you forgive us, God, set us free. Help us to fully surrender our soul to you and to keep you at the center of all our days. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.